Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman here with you. We've got a really huge show today. Will America recover from the right-wing billionaires' war against us as manifested in the uh, Trump presidency? We'll get to that in just a minute. Are you voting for values this year? I want to talk about uh, you know Trump versus Biden in a way that you probably haven't heard before. So uh, just to start off, what is it going to take to recover America? And I think Joe Biden is starting to lay out a really comprehensive vision, by the way, of uh, national, you know, basically doing what European countries are doing, a national testing program, a national contact tracing program, isolation of people who are infected. Uh, it, it, you know, it's going to take another shutdown for a while until, you know, the fires burn down to embers and then we can start going around putting out the embers. But that's, that's how we've got to do it. But when we look at what this COVID virus is doing to people, it's breathtaking. And what I find particularly fascinating is, yeah, you know, to a certain extent, science is sort of catching up with us and we're figuring a lot of these things out now. But also now that it's hitting the red states, 75 percent of the new infections last week were in states that Donald Trump won. Now that it's hitting the red states, suddenly Mike Pence is wearing a mask. Donald Trump is talking masks. Good. Yeah, good. Uh, you know, the, it's it's like suddenly all the Republicans are getting religion. They're getting covid religion. Keep in mind, even though a majority of voters in Wisconsin voted for Democrats and thus elected a Democratic governor, the Republicans still control the House, the Senate and the Supreme Court in Wisconsin because of gerrymandering after the 2010 census. A three-judge panel, this is the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit out of Chicago, but they rule on cases in Wisconsin. Three Republican-appointed judges overturned a 2016 ruling that in Wisconsin, early voting was okay. They let this case go on for three years, kind of ignored it, and then just a few months before the election, oh my God, you can't have early voting in Wisconsin! Now you're seeing why Mitch McConnell made this his top priority. Judges, judges, judges. And they upheld, the Republicans had passed a law restricting early voting and restricting absentee ballots in Wisconsin back in 2016 when they still controlled the state. 
and Scott Walker was still governor, they passed a law saying, no, you guys cannot have early voting and you cannot have absentee ballots, mail-in ballots. And then, you know, some voting advocates challenged it. It went to court. A judge said, no, that's unconstitutional. You can't prevent people from voting. And now you've got three Republican-appointed judges. Well, as John Nichols of The Nation said, right-wing judicial activists just gave their Republican allies in Wisconsin's legislature a green light to suppress votes. Judge Frank Easterbrook, a Reagan appointee, wrote in his 27-page ruling, early voting is not a fundamental right in itself. Right. And then down in Georgia, you know, hey, let's do something about policing. So what did the Republicans do in the legislature in Georgia? They passed hate crime legislation. House Bill 426. It's called the Police Hate Crimes Bill. And what it says is, if you intimidate, harass, or terrorize a police officer, you are guilty of a hate crime. Don't you dare talk back to the police. You go to prison for years. This is astonishing. You could face up to five years in prison and a $5,000 fine for yelling at a cop. It's just breathtaking. This is the Republican answer to police violence. This is another story that I wanted to share with you, and I think that this really uh, illustrates what's, what's really going on here and what, one of the things that, frankly, we should be talking about. And this is the Trump campaign has sued. They hired lawyers and they engaged in a lawsuit against the state of Pennsylvania. And four Republican members of the U.S. House of Representatives who represent Pennsylvania are co-defendants in this thing, including they are representatives Glenn Thompson. These are all Republicans in the U.S. House. Glenn Thompson, John Joyce, Mike Kelly, and Guy Reschenthaler. Now, what are they suing for? They want to overturn a Pennsylvania law that allows you to vote by mail. The lawsuit claims that the defendants, the 67 county election boards and the Secretary of State, quote, have inexplicably chosen a path that jeopardizes election security and will lead and has already led to the disenfranchisement of voters, questions about the accuracy of election results, and ultimately chaos ahead of the November 3rd election. And what is it they're complaining about? A Pennsylvania law that was passed last year that expanded mail-in balloting so that you didn't have to prove, you know, you didn't have to submit a doctor's slip to get a mail-in ballot. You didn't have to have a reason for why you couldn't vote. The Trump campaign and Republican members of Congress are suing the state of Pennsylvania to say, no, you may not allow people to vote on November 3rd. Desperate, anyone?
Tom Hartman here with you, and on the line with us is our old buddy Greg Pallas, the investigative journalist for the BBC, The Guardian, Rolling Stone, etc. His new book, How Trump Stole 2020, The Hunt for America's Vanished Voters. GregPallas.com is his website, his Twitter handle, Greg underscore Pallas. Greg, what's, uh, first of all, welcome back, my friend. And secondly, what's the latest that you're hearing about the primaries that we're seeing with these long line primaries from Georgia, you know, on to, we saw the same thing in Kentucky, uh, around the country these long-line primaries being translated into a disaster in November. What's going on? Yeah, I would say so. Um, We had a pretty good imitation of democracy, but we're still a long way from the real thing. So we had massive lines, and we have to ask why. And by the way, look at the color of the people on the massive lines, Tom. In Atlanta, one of my associates actually walked along a line that was nearly a quarter mile long. Now, if you think people and African Americans in Atlanta just don't have enough sense to stay out of a line of sick people for hours and, you know, just enjoy standing in the sun for hours, the answer is that's not what happened. You really well, did have Greg, I gotta tell you. with the mail-in ballots, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I lived in Georgia for 13 years. We lived in Cobb County and northern Atlanta suburbs. We lived for about half that time in uh, Marietta and about half that time, you know, just north of Marietta. And I never waited more than 10 minutes to vote, ever. These were mostly You aren't by any chance a a white man, are you? Uh, Yeah, yeah, there's one set of lines for black people, one set of lines for white. And one of the reasons it happens, you've had in in so many of these states, and this was in, and I've gotten reports. Interestingly, I've had three of the top voting rights attorneys in America say that either they or their family had trouble voting. So, for example, um, in uh, Georgia, the head of the ACLU of Georgia, Andrea Young, put in for a, a mail-in ballot 45 days before the election. Uh, she got hers, but her husband got his on, on June 10. In other words, a day after the election, that's when he received his ballot. So, of course, he had to then stand in line for hours and end up with a provisional ballot and fight over that one. Same thing with uh, Stacey Abrams. Now, here's a good one. Uh, I think that it's a bit humid in, in Georgia in June, right? So Stacey Abrams, you know, who is, well, fair fight Georgia, we've talked about, African-American. So she gets her, her ballot, and the envelope that you have to return the vote in is sealed shut because they used, in Georgia, they were using the regular envelopes, and the humidity sealed the envelope. You rip open that envelope, you have no choice, you've just lost your vote. Now, Stacey because Abrams you've, knew, you've tampered with the, with the delivery system for returning it. That's right. And a lot of people, and this is going to be a big problem with mail-in voting. Now, I want people to understand, Greg Pallas is totally in favor of mail-in voting, safe, don't-die voting. What I am concerned about is that we don't have that system developed in the United States and in most places outside of Oregon and Washington. Uh, we have tremendous problems. So, again, so Stacey Abrams got a ballot with the return envelope sealed, she breaks that and she loses her vote. Now, she knows that because she's a top voting rights attorney, so she can go. She knew that she would have to go to her county office and get a new envelope, believe it or not. But you can, there are thousands and thousands of people who will, for all kinds of reasons, they'll lose that envelope and they'll, they'll make their own envelope. You're going to lose your vote. Hundreds of thousands of voters lose their mail-in votes because they created their own envelope or they messed up the envelope in some way. You have to use that official envelope. That was Stacey Abrams, and again, you know, the ACLU's, the ACLU, her husband didn't get his ballot in time. Uh, in New York, 
Neil Rosenstein, the, the chief voting rights attorney for the New York Public Interest Group. Uh, his daughter, I won't mention her name on the air, but she didn't get her mail-in ballot. It turns out she was scrubbed. Her father, the big-shot lawyer, went with her to try to get her a vote, and they, uh, they said, no, here's a provisional ballot. Go have fun with yourself. We know what provisional ballots are. They're, I won't say they're never counted. I want to be very careful about that. About a, one in three or so of the provisional ballots are never counted. But there were all, three million provisional ballots in 2016. A million weren't counted. And I'm telling you, Hillary Clinton's victory was in that pile of a million ballots thrown out because young voters and voters of color get provisional ballots about 300% or more often than older white people. And so, right. you, so you've got a big problem here with the, uh, with the mail-in, but we can figure out how to do it. We can figure out how to fix it. But that's oh, we've, we've got, got five do, states Tom. that are all mail-in ballots, and you've got another four yeah. or five states where it's super, super easy. It seems to me that we need to establish voting as a right. So the states are, you know, I mean, right now it's, it's, it's opt-in rather than opt-out, if you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's yes. uh, you know, the, is there a movement toward that within the Democratic Party? Yeah, there is among the Democratic Party, but guess what? They don't control the Senate, Tom. I think you, you're right. aware of that. Right. So we can have all kinds of great ideas. Amy Klobuchar has a bill in. Senator Harris has a bill in. A lot of people have bills in. We're going to have to take care of our own vote. We're going to have to have a campaign of education. Like things like, right. don't use your own envelope. And I'm sorry, and, and if it didn't arrive, you're going to have to go down to your county clerk's office and pick up that ballot. Or go or in call and them and ask them to mail you a new one? if you can get to them, and that's always a problem. Right. So we, because remember, we're not talking now about a few thousand people asking for absentee ballots. We're talking about states going from less than 100,000 absentee ballots to several million, as in Georgia. Some of it, I mean, you know, I won't say that it's, I'm not going to let them off the hook and say it's not intentional, because they know what's going to happen here, and they are hostile to the mail-in voters. In fact, things are going the, the wrong way. Like in Georgia, there's a bill in to prevent the state from sending out cards asking you if you want a mail-in ballot. You know, the governor right. did send out, uh, well, and I'm that's not, not unique to Georgia, by the way. Yeah, so they're trying to stop people from even being sent a postcard saying, would you like to mail in your vote? Uh, would you like to get a mail-in ballot? And this is our biggest problem, by the way, that 20, the reason 22% of mail-in ballots don't get counted, according to MIT Caltech study, that's one in five votes don't get counted, is that the biggest loss is people not getting their ballot in the first place. You know, you can't mail it back. You can't mail in a ballot if it's not mailed to you. And, of course, so they're trying to slow that down. By the way, it's not true. You can't – we're not going to get thousands and millions of ballots from Kazakhstan and Russia filled out because every mail in Yeah, this is Trump's latest thing. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's, it's hysterical. Uh, well, I mean, maybe he mailed his ballot to Moscow, so I, don't, I have no idea. But it doesn't yeah. go the other way because each ballot has a code on it. And you can't just start mailing in ballots because they won't have the code or they'll be matched with someone else. So it's, it's, I don't even know why I'm, I'm talking about fraud and mail-in ballots being mailed from other countries. This is how ridiculous the discussion has become, Tom. It's gone into nutcaseville because of Agent Orange. And so, no, I do want to assure people, no, your, your mail-in vote won't be flooded out by a bunch of, of guys from the Ukraine uh, mailing in uh, right. for Rand Paul. You know, that's not right. going to happen.
Yeah. But the bottom line is, if you are presented with the choice, uh, you know, or presenting yourself essentially with the choice of either going through the hassle of getting a mail-in ballot or simply not voting because you're not willing to die in order to vote, go to the trouble of getting the mail-in ballot, even if it does get screwed up, right? Yeah, and look, look, we have to, some of it is learning how to fill out a mail-in ballot. You think, well, it's because it's not just, mm-hmm. you know, pick and lick. You don't just pick a candidate and lick the stamp. Number one, you may need two stamps. We had a hundred and over 100,000 ballots in 2016, mail-in ballots, deep-sixed because they were missing a, a stamp or two stamps. Like in Ohio, you really right. need two stamps. And, so it, and people don't know this because, again... A lot of these GOP states are terribly hostile to mail-in voting. Well, here in Oregon, it's, it's, uh, you know, the envelopes are postage paid. You don't have to put a stamp on them. In Oregon, not in in Georgia. Easy. Yeah, no, I get it. Greg Palast is is, his new book, and you're going to want to read this, How Trump Stole 2020, The Hump for America's Vanished Voters. will be out in a couple of weeks. Greg underscore Palast on Twitter. Greg, thanks so much for dropping by. You're the best, Tom. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. It's the Tom Harbin University Book Club. Today we're reading from Minority Leader, How to Lead from the Outside and Make Real Change by Stacey Abrams. This is from Chapter 1. I sit in the living room, a cozy space, warm in the early summer. I'm perched on the edge of a sofa next to Valerie, the home's owner, a lovely black woman in her late 40s. Across from us, seated close together on a wide settee met for one, are her two children, a son and a daughter. Politicians rarely visit their streets, which are nestled in a poorer community in South Georgia. Valerie beams with pride that both her children are headed to college in the fall. David, 17, plans to study criminology. Maya, 18, her belly round with her first child, intends to become a middle school teacher. Both newly graduated from high school, Maya will give birth in mere weeks and begin college months later, an unwed teen mother. Her intended school is more than three hours north of her home, so her mother will raise her newborn baby while she starts her freshman year. Valerie speaks matter-of-factly about the coming challenge, raising a new child just as hers leave the nest. Still, she is determined that both her children pursue college degrees that she never received. Maya, the mother-to-be, wonders how she'll do so far away from home and her baby. Yet in the next breath, she explains how college will be the best for her and her child. Their future success rests upon her. I've come to their home as part of my campaign for governor, so I asked Valerie what she expects of someone like me. What can I do to help make lives like hers better? In her soft voice, she replies, she just wants options for financial aid for her children. They will succeed, she says, if they can afford to stay in school. As I look around the modest home passed down through the generations, I understand both the pride and the desperation tangled in her response. She got them through and has given them the tools to carve out better lives for themselves. We chat more about the worries she's lived with all those years, our discussion turning to the crime and poverty in their neighborhood. Then I ask Valerie what she wants. At first, all I get in response is a quizzical look. That suggests that I need to reconsider my bid for higher office. I repeat, what do you want for you? What secret dream do you have for yourself? Her confused expression turns to one of surprise. I don't know, she tells me. I've been a cashier at the Piggly Wiggly for 20 years. You must want something, I probe. Something you'd like to do for you? A daycare, she admits quietly. I'd like to start a daycare center for unwed mothers like my daughter so more girls can finish school and pursue their dreams. But that ambition is beyond her. Her body language, her tone of voice, her averted gaze speak louder than her words. I press her, but she demurs with a smile. Let's just see what happens if you win the governor's job, she says. Valerie's house in South Georgia is not too different from the squat red brick house where I grew up on South Street in Gulfport, Mississippi. An oak tree grew in our front yard, shadowing the front sidewalk, forbidding grass to grow beneath its shade. Pink azaleas bloomed each spring from bushes that flanked the front door. Our rented house and the others set close by teemed with children, all black, all working class. We played in our postage-stamped yards, 
make believing the fantastical. Superhero exploits, cops and robbers. As we got older, we'd talk about moving to New Orleans or living in one of the mansions along the beachfront that lay less than five miles away across the railroad tracks that ran in between our neighborhood and the more wealthy environs. We dreamed of more while our parents' lives centered around survival and making it from paycheck to paycheck. Instinctively, we understood that more had to be possible, even if we didn't know what to do to get there. These imaginings, these desires, are the roots of ambition. As adults, like Valerie, we tend to edit our desires until they fit our construction of who we're supposed to become. In such a world, I wouldn't dare dream of running for higher office, for mayor, or governor, or president. At least for now, Valerie sees herself retiring in 20 more years from Piggly Wiggly as a cashier, rather than as a small business owner who helps the community raise its children. From our brief meeting, I could see she had the fire, albeit of a low burn, of a minority leader. She had ambition, she had vision, but she didn't have the faith, and understandably so. Whether we come from working-class neighborhoods or grow up comfortably middle-class, minorities rarely come of age explicitly thinking about what we want and how to get it. People already in power almost never have to think about whether they belong in the room, much less if they would be listened to once outside. These men, and they are usually men and typically white, do not have to grapple with low expectations based on gender or race or class. Ambition for them begins with the reminiscences of old times and older friendships or newer alliances. The ends have already been decided. Only the means are to be discussed. Most potential minority leaders feel the same lack of faith Valerie had, at least at some point in their evolution. We may not know how to get the first job, let alone make it to the big chair. We don't know how to take the leap from accepting our fates to actually changing them, and not just a little, but radically. Then there are those who simply don't know what they want. The drive to achieve burns inside, often without a clear target. We want to be something, but what that is remains hazy. Often we cannot articulate our goals because they lie just beyond the reach of who we're supposed to be. Ambition's scale is irrelevant. What holds us back is not scope, it's fear. And because we don't know what to call our dreams, don't know how to make them happen, or are pretty sure we'll be disappointed, we just stand still. But becoming a minority leader demands that we embrace ambition as our due. Stacey Abrams. Tim in St. Cloud, Minnesota. Hey, Tim, what's up? I have a rock here, which was painted by a good friend of mine. And that rock is so much smarter than Donald Trump, you would not even believe. And my question is, is how do we get this guy out of the White House? Well, there's this thing on November 3rd. There's a slogan around it that has to do with flushing something that rhymes with third. And, you know, it's, it's like, to the best I, I of my knowledge, that's, that's the only option we have right now, because, uh, you know, the, the Republicans in the that, Senate but, uh, are very about, clear they're not going to kick him out. What about voter suppression? Yeah, right well, if they're going to suppress 5% of the vote, we've got to show up 7, 8, 9, 10% of the vote. Exactly. We, we so just have no choice right now, Tim. We don't there. control the majority of the states. And in the majority of the states, voter suppression is absolutely a way of life. So basically, let's get these young folks out there. Not just young folks, everybody. I mean, you know, it's, it's oh, we have everybody, to be, everybody. Yes, 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 yes. But, but, sorry, but yes, young, so young folks are the, are the group that, that we know have strong political opinions that historically have not showed up for elections. And so, exactly. yes, uh, all of the above. Thank you, Tim. Tina watching Free Speech TV in Chicago. Hey, Tina, what's up? 
Hi, I think right now we're at a crossroads. We've had beautiful demonstrations that exploded on the scene for the last, you know, three going into four weeks and, you know, demanding an end to white supremacy and systematic racism. And now some of these movements are demanding that Trump and Pence and the whole regime have to step down. You had Greg Pallas on talking about how the elections can be rigged, how these uh, mail-in voting things cannot work. We have to demand that this regime step down right now. We can't wait. And there's a movement called hashtag out now for Trump and Pence. And you can look that up. I think everybody, you know, you're talking about all the crimes of the Trump-Pence regime, including with the COVID virus. We've got to demand into the streets, out now, stop the whole country with nonviolent, massive protests in our millions. That's the only way. Yeah. We this can this get sounds, rid of Tina, like the kind of stuff that, uh, you know, the Revolutionary Communist Party cult out of New York was pushing back during the Iraq war, you know, out now. I mean, it is very, very reminiscent. And basically it was just a fundraiser for them and an opportunity for them to reach deeper into politi- legitimate political movements. There is, to the best of my knowledge, no way to end the Trump administration right now. And if you think that but getting people on the streets instead it. of going to work is going to do it, it ain't. You've got 40 million, 42 million people today who are out of work. So you've already the, the economy's already shut down. Well, we, you know, there are so many reasons why elections won't won't do it. And I think people, you know, I get it that the Revolutionary Communist Party and other, you know, other, you know, folks like them who think that, you know, hey, we just need to blow the whole system up, tear it down, start over again. Like and the people who started over again are going to be perfect. But that's not the real world, Tina. That's what happens in the minds of basically hustlers, left wing hustlers. You think that the elections are not going to be rigged and sabotaged like Greg Pallas was talking about? The elections have always been rigged and sabotaged. The, the, the thing is, you've got to get around that. You know, if you want, if we divert our efforts away from making sure that people are registered to vote and that they show up to vote, knowing that five million of our votes are not going to get counted or are going to be suppressed, but, you know, which means we've got to show up 10 million extra people, right? But if we I'm divert our efforts away vote. from that to yelling in the streets and saying, shut it down, we're going to lose. We're guaranteed to lose, Tina. People should vote, but they also need to make that demand. I mean, these uh, demonstrations have really moved. What demand? What demand? demand You know, for ending systemic racism. Oh, well, of course. That's why people have been in the streets for weeks, Tina. Yeah, but but Trump is an out-and-out racist. He's part of this. You know, attack, calling out these boogaloo boys, like you mentioned. I agree, but throwing hashtags at him is not going to stop him. And, you know, telling people not to go to work is not going to stop Trump either. Although, you know, (laughs) there was a time when we actually had that fantasy. Tina, thank you for the comments. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. 
With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give. But what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are, too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. On the Science Revolution this week, Dr. Michael Mann with the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University is here on the impact of the Arctic hitting a whopping 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit, the hottest temperature on record for the Arctic. Should we be worried? Professor Jeffrey D. Sachs drops by on COVID-19 reversing globalization and the Toxics Program Advocate with U.S. Public Interest Research Group, Danielle Melgar, is on the show. Why are we ignoring rocket fuel in our drinking water? Tune in wherever fine podcasts are available. Welcome back, Tom Hartman here with you, and uh, I promised to tell you about uh, what's going on in Pennsylvania. The uh, Republican Party, the National Republican Party, and four Republican members of the House of Representatives from Pennsylvania have sued the state because a couple years ago, the state of Pennsylvania, or last year, passed a law. The legislature passed a law, was signed by the governor that said that you don't have to have a doctor's slip to get a mail-in ballot, to get an absentee ballot. You don't have to give a reason if you don't want to vote in person. And as a result of that, this April in the primary in Pennsylvania, 1.8 million Pennsylvanians asked for a ballot 
got it, and 1.5 million of them returned their ballots, which is pretty good. But the Republicans, including Representatives uh, Glenn Thompson, these are all members of the U.S. House, Republicans from Pennsylvania, Glenn Thompson, John Joyce, Mike Kelly, and Guy Reschenthaler, they and the Republican Party and the Trump campaign are suing to say, uh, no, we want to get that law in front of one of these Republican judges that Mitch McConnell just appointed so that they can strike that law down so that 1.8 million Pennsylvanians who want to vote by mail will be forced to show up in person if they really want to vote this year. Right. David in Hawley, Missouri. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? Hey, thanks, Tom, for taking my call. Uh, I'm sorry to be off message, but I've heard you talk about this so much that why not Why not uh, Article 1, you know, Congress, since they can regulate the courts, start defunding them like the Republicans do to all the programs, you know? Just because, I mean, they're so bloated, uh, uh, don't they just have like a blank check? No, no, they don't. And, you know, the court's budgets are relatively modest, as far as I know, I mean, it's not like the military-industrial complex or the Pentagon. And, uh, yeah. and the problem with defunding the courts is that, you know, probably about half of the people on the federal bench are, you know, decent, reasonable people. And then we've got these 200, you know, fools who Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell right. and, and uh, the Federalist Society got, got on, the, on the bench. I don't think defunding them is, is the way to do it. Uh, you know, keep thinking, though. It's like, you know, it's a start. And we got to, you know, what are, how are we going to respond to these people? Paul in Benton, Pennsylvania. Hey, Paul, what's up? Yeah, how you doing, Tom? You know, I was thinking, of, you know, I grew up in the 60s and 70s and everything. We're, you know, in the same age bracket. And I remember when cops, you know, they looked like cops, you know, uh, the, the uniforms and everything else, and they were trained to be peace officers. They weren't trained to be stormtroopers. They weren't equipped like stormtroopers. And, you know, if you train a cop... You know, uh, train them like a stormtrooper and equip them that way, and they look that way, they're going to act that way. And, you know, I know sure. a lot of cops that, you know, on the force 20 some years never fired a service revolver, but, you know, they all delivered a few babies in their time. You know, I mean, they were trained to do that. And I think it all, I mean, somehow. I well, mean, we Paul, got- this is the point that I made. People say, well, how should reformed policing look? What would it look like if we were to actually reform policing? And I would say, go to any white suburb in America. That's what it would look like. The only time the police show up is if there's a genuine crisis, if somebody's house being broken into or their car stolen or something. Although here in Portland, they don't even respond to car stolen things anymore. (laughs) One of my kids had her car stolen and the police were like, oh, we don't do that anymore. But, you know, they will show up in the streets to beat up protesters. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's just arguably there has always been a time in America where we've had rational policing and that's been in white neighborhoods, you know, where the police have, have treated people with deference and respect. And we just, uh, we don't just need to extend that across the board. But that, I mean, that that's a reasonable starting point, I think, is to say, you know, let's go back to cops being cops the way they were to white people, to everybody. Yeah, definitely. Does that sense, Paul? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay, Paul, thanks a lot for the call. Sometimes... Sometimes when you look at complex situations like policing in America, you really can, you know, boil them down. We know what reasonable policing looks like. White people know what reasonable policing looks like. Black people know what unreasonable policing looks like. Let's fix this situation. This is the Tom Hartman Program.
So for our Tom Harbin Insider video that's available over at TomHarbin.com, I'm talking about Donald Trump just completely giving in to Erdogan of Turkey, the president of Turkey, the dictator of Turkey now, and this theory that Jared Kushner okayed the killing, at least the capture, perhaps the killing of Jamal Khashoggi to Mohammed bin Salman, and that Erdogan has the tape of it, and that when he called up Donald Trump and said, I want you to pull out of Syria and give me those Kurds so I can kill them and take that land, that he did it because Erdogan threatened him. And then Erdogan comes to the United States a week or two later and gets a whole state dinner thing. Check it all out. It's over at TomHartman.com. I think you'll find it fascinating. Robert in Portland. Hey, Robert, thanks for listening to X-Ray FM. What's up? Hey, Tom, how you doing? Uh, you know, I've got this mixed feelings on scenes lately of how a lot of Republicans are jumping ship and, you know, endorsing Biden. And mm-hmm. I just feel like, you know, ultimately, I guess this is good, you know, anything to get Trump out of the office. But I also feel like finally... You know, after everything this guy has done, you know, the collusion, the Kosoji, uh, clearances for Jared, and, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, Why now? You know, it's like, I just feel, I guess I got these mixed feelings on this where finally now, you know, the COVID crisis mishandling. I mean, where were these people two years ago, you know? Well, about six months ago, you know, I did a whole show about this, and I've, t- I've mentioned it a number of times, Robert, where I was hypothesizing, and I think that my hypothesis is coming true, that the biggest fear that elected Republicans have, now there's two categories of Republicans right now. There's the elected ones, and then there's the formerly elected ones, if we're talking about, you know, public officials. And it's the formerly elected ones who are coming out against Trump right now. They just today announced that they've organized a super PAC. This was uh, alumni of the Bush administration who are, uh, you know, launching a super PAC to vote for Joe Biden, to encourage people to vote for Joe Biden. So there's that. But what I was saying is that the biggest fear of the elected Republicans is that Trump or a Trump following candidate will launch a primary challenge against them. And Mm. I said, if this is the case, if this is the main thing that they fear, they fear a primary challenger, then after the primaries, if they win their primaries, they are probably going to start being a whole lot less subservient, a whole lot less, you know, butt kissing to Donald Trump. And I think now that, and I said, and you'll start to see that in the summer. You know, because the, the, the primary season, basically, uh, most of the Republican primaries are between March and July or, or you know, the end of July. And yeah. uh, sure enough, you know, uh, post-primary, you've got, you know, Lindsey Graham speaking up. And, you know, some, some of the elected Republicans are starting to, uh, starting to speak out or at least put a little tentative foot in the water and see how it plays. And I think that more and more of that's going to happen as, as they realize that Trump is you know, he's destroying their party and he's destroying their own possibility of getting reelected. And not to mention, you know, how much of America has been destroyed. You know, Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, you know, the list goes on. And it's just, I don't know, I just feel like I'm angry about it. You know, I'm angry, like the destruction that has happened. And now they're 
starting to come around. You know, it's like. Well, there's another category of Republicans here, too, Robert, that you have to consider. Mitch McConnell, Tom Cotton, um, you know, these guys who are still kind of in Trump's camp, as it were, they never really were in Trump's camp. They were in the camp of the oligarch billionaires in the United States, the billionaire oligarchs in this country, the right wing billionaires. And they are still in the camp of the right wing billionaires. So when the right wing billionaires decide that Trump is dangerous to them or bad for them, then those guys are going to change. But until then, they're going to continue going down this road. Robert, thank you for the call. And, and, the, and the simple reality is Trump is giving the right wing billionaires everything they want. You know, deregulation, elimination of environmental regulations, no longer regulating banksters. I mean, you know, it just goes on and on and on. Uh, Huge tax cuts, carried interest income, you know, deduction. I mean, all this stuff. Trump is just handing it to them on a silver platter. Hey, we're putting together a series of American history books It started with a hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment. Then we had the hidden history of the Supreme Court, the betrayal of America. Then the hidden history of the Republican War on voting. Coming out soon is the hidden history of monopolies, how big business destroyed the American dream. And then next spring, it's going to be the hidden history of oligarchy and tyranny. So I don't know if you caught uh, Joe Biden's speech this morning. It was good. It was it was really well done, although he is a little soft spoken, but I get it. You know, he's got essentially a speech impediment. But, you know, Trump is running these ads on TV right now, showing Joe in those uh, moments that, you know, many people have when they when they get over 60, where, you know, for just a minute, you lose track of something or whatever. And, you know, as if this is the entirety of him, you know, these these little moments. And they're going to continue doing this. They're going to continue their, their pitch, their anti-Joe Biden pitch, is he's senile. And I've seen people on the left doing the same thing with clips of Donald Trump, suggesting that he's senile. Uh, frankly, I don't think either of these guys are senile. I, th- you know, I think that uh, both of them are probably acting the way many people in their mid to late 70s do. Uh, Trump is 74, Biden is 77. But... Let's say for a moment, you know, just let me speak to the to the right wingers who are listening. And I know you're out there who are making your your principal argument against Joe Biden is that, you know, he he's he's senile. Let's just use that phrase. And let's just say for a minute that, yeah, he's slipping badly. And let's, you know, I'll, I'll, for the sake of discussion here for a moment, let's, let's stipulate that. And let's also stipulate that Trump is slipping badly. And that Trump isn't so much making his own decisions. People around him are. And that Biden's got somebody else writing his speeches for him. So how are you going to vote in 2016 if those are your choices? Because what happens or where we would be at in that kind of a situation is that you're not voting for somebody because of their ability to do quadratic equations. You're not voting for somebody because of their ability to remember, you know, uh, in detail moments from American history. You're not voting for somebody because they can recite, you know, dozens of uh, numbers of pieces of House legislation or the uh, intricate details of the Affordable Care Act. 
You're voting for values. Mark Pocan made this point on my program, geez, two years ago, I think. Congressman Mark Pocan, he said, he said, we need to be talking not about policy, but about values. Policies come out of values. Values are at the top of the pyramid. Everything else flows out of values. And whether Trump or Biden are the sharpest knives in the drawer this week, what we do know is that they have very different values. Trump's values have to do with worshiping power and wealth and denigrating women, people of color, people of low income. You know, Trump basically has no respect for anybody except billionaires and, and clearly and openly hates the values, or at least the espoused values, upon which this country was founded and to which we have tried over two and a half centuries to, to live. Biden, on the other hand, embodies the values in large part. And I get it. You know, he's backed some really stupid legislation in the past, the crime bill and stuff like that back in the 90s. Uh, you know, he was all in with Bill Clinton on this stuff. That was then. This is now. Biden is embracing values of pluralism, of compassion, of caring for people, of democracy, small d democracy. Trump embraces the values of autocracy, of oligarchy. So I'm voting for Biden this year. I'm voting values. And I really think that, you know, with any, any conversation that any of us are having with any right-wingers who are saying, well, Biden is slipping, you know, I'm like, okay, so you want to go with Trump's values, a guy who's got over 20 women saying that he, he sexually assaulted them or raped them? Credible allegations. A guy who, who embraces dictators from foreign countries and trashes craps on our allies. The transcripts of what he said to Angela Merkel and Theresa May are just shocking. Of course, there are women in power. You can't have that in Trump world. So... Anyway, let me pick up your phone calls here. Enough of my rant. Jan in San Francisco. Hey, Jan, what's up? Hey, good morning. Good morning. Um, quick question for you. Assuming that Trump gets defeated in November and, and things go back to kind of the way they were, in, in your opinion, what, what needs to happen that, you know, something like Trump presidency doesn't doesn't happen again. I mean, it's, it's a pretty broad question, but is it, you know, getting money out of politics? Or, I mean, do the two parties have to look at their internal vetting system so that even if the Republicans have a president again, that at least that person is more competent? Um, or Well, that's my biggest fear, Jan. You know, you've got... Yeah, you've got uh, uh, Tom Cotton out here writing op-eds in the New York Times about, you know, <laughs> embracing, essentially embracing militarism and fascism, and he wants to be president. He's, he's, the, he's the billionaire's next guy, and, and they're looking at 2024 for Tom Cotton, and right. uh, that scares the hell out of me. I think that if Donald Trump was, you know, 30% more, more competent and intelligent uh, we would be uh, probably in a place we will never recover from right now. 
but you know he's sabotaging right. himself constantly. So number one, this legislation that Elizabeth Warren proposed that the Republicans voted down, refused to allow to be attached to the defense appropriation bill that bans any federal political campaign from getting any kind of help, including non-monetary help from foreign governments or foreign oligarchs. The Republicans fought that. That needs to be put into law right away, number one. Number two, yes, we need to get money out of, out of politics. We need to pass either a constitutional amendment or court-stripping legislation that reverses the Buckley decision, the Bellotti decision, the Citizens United decision, the McCutcheon decision, you know, right across the board. And, you know, return our politics to the people rather than the billionaires. And, of course, probably the first thing that actually has to be done is dealing with this COVID crisis that we have because everything else is subordinate to that, including voting. That's going to be a really big and really, really expensive job, uh, given how bad things are right now as a result of Trump's incompetence. So that, you know, Jan, that's that's what I think we need to do. Thanks for the call. And thanks for the question. Kevin in Bourne, Texas. Hey, Kevin, what's up? Hey, Tom, how are you today? Thank you for taking my call. Good. Thank you. Hey, I was just uh, calling in regards to the uh, that Goldman Sachs report that came out, I believe, a few days ago, stating that uh, wearing masks could help save our economy. Right. I don't know if you. I didn't see the report, uh, but but yep. I I agree with the sentiment. I mean, you know, if I'm, if if two people wearing masks, regardless of whether one of them has COVID or not, well, if one person has COVID and the other doesn't, and both of them are wearing masks, the risk of transmission is down to you know in the neighborhood of under two percent. Whereas if the person uh, with COVID doesn't have the mask, even if you do, your risk of transmission is seventy percent. I mean, that's a huge difference. Absolutely. So yeah, obviously Absolutely. it's going to have a huge impact on the economy. Oh, thank you for taking my call today, Tom. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks a lot, Kevin. Good to hear from you. Hillary, in, uh, Same also place, in Bourne, Texas? Bernie, Texas. Yeah. Um, the long-term consequences of COVID-19 and dementia that you were talking about. There's yes. a professor at Texas A&M named Jeff Cirillo, and he said when he heard that people were reporting that loss of taste and smell from COVID-19, he was, quote-unquote, scared. And you don't often hear that from a scientist. But he said that told him that the virus was actually causing inflammation of the central nervous system and of the brain. And it's a damage very similar to Alzheimer's and dementia. And he said that so it's affecting the same part of the brain. So the net effect is that in five to ten years, he thinks these people will have uh, Alzheimer's like dementia. As a consequence of the yeah, virus. there's a there's a debate about that. I, there was a long thread over in the British Medical Journal about I don't know a month or so. You know, doctors debating this, and the debate is: is this affecting the parts of the brain that process that data? In which case, your concern is absolutely legitimate, particularly since uh, uh, smell and taste are are not mediated by the thalamus. They're they're lower in the brain. They're more primitive senses, and they're so they're more whole brain response. Um, or is it just clogging up the olfactory bulbs? You know, is it shutting down the actual sense organs? And nobody knows. But if it is the former, if it is as you're saying, Hillary, that's a hell of a scary thing. Hillary, thank you for that. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. This is the Tom Hartman Program, your media support group for We the People.
So for our Tom Harbin Insider video that's available over at TomHarbin.com, it's pretty mind-boggling, actually. Candidate Trump, back in 2016, said, I'm not going to cut Social Security like every other Republican, and I'm not going to cut Medicare or Medicaid. Every other Republican is going to cut, but I won't. That's what he said. Well, what did his budget actually propose? His budget actually proposed, this is last year's budget. Congress didn't pass it, thank God, but this is what his budget proposed. $1.9 trillion in cuts to Medicare and Medicaid and $26 billion in cuts to Social Security. And now he is block granting Medicaid to the states, which is already cutting back on Medicaid programs in the red states. You can check it all out over at TomHartman.com. I was calling to get your opinion on comparing Trump to uh, the kingfish, Huey Long. Huey Long? Yeah. Have you ever read Huey Long's Every Man a King speech? No, I, I read the book, The Kingfish, okay. and I've seen a number of documentaries. And I, in graduate school, I had a political science professor that had said, and it always stuck with me, that FDR was a kind of feared Huey Long running for president because of his populist stance, like Trump, you know, Trump's base. Mm -hmm. And Huey Long had, I think, had that base. I mean, it was a different time. We were in the throes of the Depression. Right. But I always uh, wanted you, you Huey know, Long was attacked as a populist, but he was attacked mostly by the big money people in the South. I, you know, my sense of it was that Huey, I mean, Huey Long was talking about how, you know, there were a bunch of rich people, basically an oligarchy that was running the South, and he was attacking it. He was, and I think he was assassinated yeah. for that. Yeah, he was assassinated by a Jewish doctor. I, rem I remember reading that. Uh, but I always, whatever, I, you know, I, I, <laughs> no, no uh, ethnicity or religion has a, has a monopoly on being reasonable. But, no, no, but the, I'm, not, I'm, but, not infer I'm not inferring that. But I always feel that there's some kind of kingfish in Donald Trump. Well, to the extent that he was using populist sentiment, he was speaking against the establishment, he was saying to the average downtrodden person in America, or at least white person in America, that he was going to make them wealthy and rich again. Yeah, it could be. Uh, but, uh, you know, in terms of the message itself, you know, Huey Long's Every Man a King's speech is all over the Internet. I strongly recommend you read about it. Although, you know, you read the biography. Stick around. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Cokeland, The Secret History of Coke Industries and Corporate Power in America by Christopher Leonard. This is from the preface. On May 18, 1981, four Wall Street bankers traveled to Wichita, Kansas. They went there to make an offer to Charles Koch, the CEO of an obscure mid-size energy company. The bankers from Morgan Stanley wanted to convince Koch to take his family's company public, offering shares for sale on the New York Stock Exchange. Their deal was squarely in line with the conventional wisdom of corporate America at the time. Going public was seen as a natural progression for companies like Coke Industries, offering them access to big pools of money and promising enormous paydays for the existing team of executives. All it required from the CEO was to surrender control. 
Morgan Stanley, in return, would collect a small fortune in fees. Charles Koch was 45 years old. He had run Koch Industries since he was 32 when his father died suddenly. He was trim, tall, and had an athlete's build. He spoke quietly in meetings and seemed almost passive. The bankers laid out their plan to take Koch public. They revealed what, to most executives at least, might have been the most significant detail. If Charles Koch agreed to the deal, he could earn $20 million overnight. The bankers seemed incredulous when they prepared a confidential memo about Koch's reaction. He does not want this cash, the memo reported. Charles Koch calmly explained to them why their offer made no sense. His company was breathtakingly profitable. It operated in vital, deeply complex corners of the American energy industry. During the 1980s, Koch Industries was the largest purchaser and transporter of U.S. crude oil. It owned an oil refinery. It employed teams of commodity traders who bought and sold a wildly diverse menu of raw materials and financial products, from gasoline to paper futures contracts. This might have encouraged most CEOs to take their company public. Koch Industries, however, did not want outsiders to know how much money its traders were earning. Taking the company public would expose too many of its secrets. The memo said, certain of Koch's commodity traders are particularly worried that their high salaries, once disclosed to the public, would be used against them by their trading partners. Secrecy was a strategic necessity for Koch Industries. Charles Koch did not want to surrender it. He also didn't want to surrender control. He had a specific, clear vision of how to run his company, and he didn't need Wall Street investors to interfere. If the bankers expected Charles Koch to go along with the conventional wisdom of their time, then they, like so many outsiders, did not understand him. Beneath his low-key veneer, Charles Koch was, at his core, a fighter. He had unmovable ideas about how things should be, and he did not back down when challenged. When he was challenged by his own brothers for control of Koch Industries, he fought them in a bitter legal battle that lasted decades. When he was challenged by members of a powerful labor union during his first years as CEO, he fought them even as they committed an act of industrial sabotage that nearly destroyed Koch's oil refinery. When the FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice launched a criminal investigation into Koch Industries' oil gathering business, Charles Koch fought them with every legal and political tool at his disposal. When a liberal Congress and President Barack Obama sought to impose regulations on the fossil fuel industry to control greenhouse gas emissions, Charles Koch fought them in ways that changed U.S. politics. In each of these fights, Charles Koch prevailed. When Charles Koch dismissed the bankers in 1981, it was just a small skirmish in the larger war to control Koch Industries. After prevailing in that fight, he created a company that was true to his vision. He avoided the snares that entangled many publicly traded companies that report their financial results to investors every three months. Koch Industries didn't have to think quarter to quarter. The company thinks year to year. An internal think tank and deal-making committee called the Development Group will sometimes think through a business deal on a timeline measured in decades. This long-term view made Koch more nimble where other companies stumbled. In 2003, for example, Koch Industries bought a group of money-losing fertilizer plants when no publicly traded company was willing to take the risk. Today, those plants are as profitable as a broken ATM machine that spews out cash around the clock. Unlike publicly traded companies, Koch Industries does not pay out rich in dividends to investors. Charles Koch insists on reinvesting at least 90% of the company's profits, fueling its constant expansion. This strategy laid the foundation for decades of continuous growth. Koch Industries expanded continuously by purchasing other companies and branching out into new industries. 
It specialized in the kind of businesses that are indispensable to modern civilization, but which most consumers never directly encounter. The company is embedded in the hidden infrastructure of everyday life. Millions of people use Coke's products without ever seeing Coke's name attached. Coke refines and distributes fossil fuels from gasoline to jet fuel on which the global economy is dependent. Coke is the world's third largest producer of nitrogen fertilizer, which is the cornerstone of our modern food system. Coke makes the synthetic materials used in baby diapers, waistbands, and carpets. It makes the chemicals used for plastic bottles and pipes. It owns Georgia Pacific, which makes the wall panels, beams, and plywood required to build homes and office buildings. It makes napkins, paper towels, stationery, newspaper, and personal hygiene products. Coke Industries owns a network of commodities trading offices in Houston, Moscow, Geneva, and elsewhere, which are the circulatory system of modern finance. The book Cokeland by Christopher Leonard. Frank in Columbus, Georgia. Hey, Frank, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. What I called about was the bounties, and I just cannot believe that as much of the Kool-Aid that the right has drank during this presidency, I can't believe they're going to give them a pass on this bounty thing. Their heads would be exploding if anything like this happened during a Democratic administration. And I just cannot believe. I mean, if Mike Pence was a, if Mike Pence was a good guy, he could have invoked the 26th Amendment. Oh, I agree. Frank, I'm sorry we're out of time, but I agree with your sentiment. I don't think that Trump is going to get away with this, frankly, but we'll see. Tell your friends about progressive media. Get out there, get active, tag. You're it. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and people around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.